2007, October 25th. Today is Lecture 25, Measuring Light, Spectroscopy. Alright, now we've been talking about the nature of light and matter. And today we're going to put all of those ideas together into one grand explanation for how spectroscopy works, how matter and light interact in detail. Yesterday we talked about Kirchhoff's three laws of spectroscopy, that hot solid objects produce a continuous spectrum, that a hot thin gas produces an emission line spectrum, and if I look at a cool thick gas, so I look at a continuum spectrum through a cool thick gas, what I will see is a dark absorption line spectrum superimposed on that background continuum spectrum. And we talked a lot, although I see there's a couple of gaps here, of what continuous spectra look like from hot objects. But I left unexplained how an emission line and an absorption line spectrum work. And that today requires we talk a bit more about the inner structure of atoms. So today is putting together how we measure light and how that reveals the deep structure of atoms. So the key ideas today are as follows. Every atom, every ion, and every molecule has a unique spectral signature. This spectral signature is a reflection of its internal electron orbital structure. The second key idea is that what an absorption and emission of photons is part of this process, that this electronic structure can be changed by either absorbing a photon of exactly the energy I need to jump from one orbital to another, excitation, or emitting a photon to shed exactly the amount of energy I need to jump from a higher to a lower orbital called de-excitation. And finally, I can actually pump so much light, so much energy in with a high energy photon that I can actually kick an electron off of an atom or molecule, a process called ionization. If I kick the electron off, it forms a negative ion, but I can also conversely add electrons and give it a net negative charge, and that actually will give me a negative ion. I may have said that wrong. Oh well, don't worry about it, we'll get it right later on. So, today we're going to be looking at how spectroscopy reveals the deep structure of the atom, even though it's too small for us to see. Now, it turns out that electrons are special. Electrons, unlike planets around the sun, the electrons that orbit the atomic nucleus cannot be just any old place they would like to be. They have to live in certain very specific orbits, which we refer to generically as discrete orbitals. We use the word orbital to distinguish them from a, a continuous orbit like a regular planet. Each of these orbitals is distinguished by having a different energy for the electron that is in that orbital. Okay? If an electron does not have exactly the right energy, either too little or too small, it cannot be in that orbital. Neither, and this is the surprising part, can it live between the orbitals. Now like in the solar system where gravity is important, a spacecraft can be virtually anywhere. I can put it into any smooth, continuous orbit I want to just by changing its energy a little bit or a little less. But electrons behave differently. We're now in the, in the regime where matter's behaving kind of like a wave, kind of like a particle. Now, I'll give you an example of what I mean by it has to be in that state. I'm going to give you a little example here in just a second, but it's an important idea. You have to be in the orbital or not. So you have to have exactly the energy you need for the orbital or not. Now, the details that dictate how this happens are, are dictated by something known as quantum mechanics. It's the science of the atom, the science of how matter at the smallest scales behaves sometimes like a particle and sometimes like a wave. Quantum mechanics is way beyond the scope of this course. Quantum mechanics would be way beyond the scope of an introductory physics course, 
except insofar as you might be in a junior class, at which point you could be learning about quantum mechanics. So, how does it work? Well, here's kind of a, a simple way of looking at it. The way to think about electrons jumping among the various orbitals of atoms or molecules is think about like going upstairs, right? Let's say I want to walk up the stairs here. Well, I start out here and I'm on the ground floor. I'm on the lowest level I can possibly be here. And I've got a series of stair step levels going up this aisle. If I step up, I have to either stand on the stair or off the stair. I can't sort of hover halfway between the stairs. So here I am on one stair level and a second stair level. The stair levels are discrete. I can't sort of step halfway off the step. If I do, I end up in that next step. Okay? Similarly, walking up on the chair here. I can step up on the chair, but I can't hover halfway between the chair and the floor. Similarly, I can go from there, the chair, to the table. But I can't hover halfway between. In each case, I'm kind of raising my energy here. Although, in the analogy, I'm raising my energy against gravity. If I want to get to the next level, I've got to expend a little energy and jump on down. Or I've got to use a little energy to get back up. You're looking at me like, I'm going to hurt myself here, so I've got to be somewhat careful. Inside of atoms is not too different from that. Let's take the simplest possible atom, hydrogen. It's the simplest because all it has is a proton surrounded by one electron. Can't get any simpler than that. The very first orbital that the electron can find itself in is called the ground state, just like the lowest level in this room here is kind of the ground level in the lecture room. We designate that with a number n, n is equal to level number one. This is the orbital which has the lowest possible energy of the electron around hydrogen. It cannot get any closer to the hydrogen atom. It always has to stay in that level. So this is the minimum energy it can possess. Just like in this room, I can't go any lower than the floor. Right? If this is my ground level. I could be anywhere else, but I can't get lower than the ground floor here. Each subsequent higher orbital is distinguished by being what we call an excited state. And they're numbered in order 2, 3, 4, 5, all the way up to infinity, in fact. These higher orbitals are actually higher, physically larger orbits around the nucleus. And they have a higher energy. But they come at very specific exact energies. Okay, So that's the key basic idea here is this. The electron must be in one of these orbitals. The orbitals are like stair steps. They don't come everywhere. They come in very specific, discrete steps. Each higher step has a successively higher energy. Here's a way of looking at inside the atom. Instead of showing it as a proton with, a, with an electron, I'm going to unwrap it. And I'm going to turn it into this thing which we call an energy level diagram, or sometimes called a ladder diagram. Think of it as a ladder, or a set of stairs. Here's the n equals 1 ground state. N equals 2 is the first excited state. N equals 3 is the second excited state. And you'll notice they're not evenly spaced. They're all kind of crowding up together. And in fact, if I drew a whole bunch of lines, N equals 1,000 would barely be distinguishable in pixels from this very top line that I've drawn as a dashed line and labeled N equals infinity. That is the maximum energy an electron can have and still be bound to the proton in hydrogen. If I gave an electron a little bit more energy, it would try to go up into here, and there are no more steps. It's in the continuum. Simple, uh, as simple as I can, a simple demonstration. I'll be an electron. The room will be 
uh, an atom of, oh, a stable atom of alludium phosdex. Okay? Those of you wondering, someone asked me, why did I have alludium as the stable atom in the homework? Duck Dodgers in the 24th and a half century? Alludium phosdex was the missing, uh, was the, um, the shaving cream atom. It's Marvin the Martian's second appearance. Okay, come on. Somebody's got to watch cartoons nowadays. Okay, I'm in the ground state. First excited state, second, third, fourth. A whole bunch of, can keep going, I still got discrete steps, and now I'm loose. I'm in the highest level, I can just run away. Well, I'd love to run away and in class, but I can't do that. So I have to de-excite back into the ground state. Atoms are going to do the same thing. An electron is going to be in the ground state, I can excite it into these higher states, the only place it can go from there is on to the next step or down subsequent steps, but only as far as the ground state. But I can go as far up to actually break off the atom entirely, just in the same way that I can go up the steps, reach the continuum at the back, and exit the room. Now, that's a cartoon of an atom as levels in a ladder. If you really looked at what the electron orbit looks like in the n equals 1 ground state, n equals 3 second excited state, n equals 6 fifth excited state, those don't look exactly like ladders to me. But in fact, their energies, the amount of energy the electron has as it's whipping around in that wacky orbit is in fact equal to the energy in the n equals 6 fifth excited state. It just looks funny because the electron's not really a particle or a, a crazy professor running up and down the stairs. It's actually a half-particle, half-wave thing we call a quantum. So that's what the hydrogen atom would look like for real. These are supercomputer simulations of the orbits. So what, is this, what does this have at all to do with emission lines or absorption lines? Well, if an electron makes a jump from a high energy level to a low energy level, the rules are energy has always got to be conserved. Or a different way of putting it is, it's exact change. Right? If I want to go from the high energy of n equals 3 down to the lower energy of n equals 2, I have to get rid of my excess energy somehow. And the way I do that is I emit a photon with exactly the excess energy. Each photon with a particular energy corresponds to a photon of a given frequency and hence unique color. So for example, the photon that's emitted when I jump from the n equals 3 level of hydrogen to the n equals 2, from the second to the first excited state, is a certain amount of energy. And if I say, well, what wavelength does that, of energy does that single photon with that energy correspond to? It turns out to be a red photon down here. It's got a wavelength of about 653 nanometers, for those of you who want the exact number. So if an electron in hydrogen jumps from 3 to 2, it will emit a photon of exactly that energy. Now, what if it tried to emit a photon of half the difference in energy? It can't do it any more than I can step halfway off a step. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. Similarly, the electron can't hover between the n equals 1 and n equals 2 states. It has to be in 2 or 1 and nowhere else. So it can't emit a photon of a slightly higher energy or slightly bluer. This is forbidden, and so no photons are emitted, and this region of the spectrum is black. Similarly, a shorter jump would be a smaller energy jump, lower energy or redder photon, but that's forbidden too. You can't hover between the steps on the ladder. And so any photons redder than this are forbidden. Only the exact 3 to 2 jump 
produces the three to two lines. So the difference in energy levels is what tells you the energy of the photon that will be emitted as the electron bounces down. Bigger jumps, more energy, more energy, bluer photon. So remember the way the electromagnetic spectrum works. High energy photons are bluer, low energy photons are redder. Big jumps, big energy, high energy, bluer photon. Small jumps, small energy, redder photon. So the four to three, four to two jump here makes the blue-green line. And as you might guess, the sort of purple line here is five to two, the next one up is six to two. Hmm, isn't that interesting? Notice the spacing of the levels here, and notice the spacings of the lines. That's no accident. The patterning of emission lines exactly recapitulates, or rate laid out in energy, exactly recapitulates the patterning of energy levels. It's letting us peer inside the inner structure of the atom. Okay, And of course, there's 5 to 2 and 6 to 2. Here's a, here's a way of looking at this. Here's the uh, unobtainium-123 atom. It's a three-level atom, a very simple one. An electron makes a jump from 2 to 1, produces this green line. A jump from 3 to 1 is a bigger jump, better produce a bluer line. And I can even do one more jump. The 3 to 2 transition is a little jump, small energy, redder wavelength. So this is what the spectrum of the simple three-level unobtainium looks like. There's no other lines because there's no other levels in this unobtainable little atom. We're going to use the unobtainium atom as our little test atom here because hydrogen is just a little complex. Okay, so here's unobtainium. Bam! Ooh, something hits it, excites it into the n equals 2 level. It drops down in n equals 1 and, and gets rid of its energy. That collision got it from 1 to 3. It drops into 2 and then drops into 1. Now it gets smacked and it drops into 3. Boop -a -doop, and then drops straight into one. And I produce, after three collisions, the three different emission lines. So what's happening here? Well, there's a rule. There's another rule. Quantum mechanics is full of rules. One of the rules is that an electrons inside of an atom always want to be in their lowest energy possible states. If you get them excited, electrons don't like being excited. They don't like being in a high energy state. If there's any way for them to get into a lower energy state, by shedding photons, they will do so. So atoms always want to get into their lowest possible energy state. Now, a single atom is going to be really tough to do, but we never work with single atoms. We always work with large numbers of atoms, like in a jar or in little tubes full of gas here. So what happens inside of that gas is I have to somehow get all those atoms, which are very comfortably sitting in their ground state, and excite them somehow. And one of the ways I can excite them is I can smack them. Right? Here I'm going to smack it again with some other atom, comes along, smacks it, steals some of the energy from the collision to excite and then de-excite. Another one comes along, excites out of n equals 1, says, no, I don't like being there, I'm going to go back into 3, but by way of 2, and emit two photons. This one excites it into n equals 3, and then it says, I'll go straight back into n equals 1 and emit a blue photon. Now, it's kind of a semi-random process. When I get hit, I have to take exactly the energy necessary to get me into the excited state. And I can either go straight, if I get up into the n equals 3 state, I can either go straight back down into n equals 1, or I can kind of do it where I go step by step, down to 2, and then down to 1. So it's sort of start up a little cascade, and it follows it in various random ways. So some atoms are going up into 3 and straight back into 1. Some atoms are only getting excited into 2 
and then back into one. Some atoms get excited into three and go back into two to one. And as I pile up billions upon billions of atoms, all doing a slightly different variation, they all emit together this patterning of lines, showing you all the different pathways you can go from exciting from n equals one to three back down into one as it de-excites. So that's how I create a line spectrum for a particular atom. I sit there and excite it and watch how it de-excites and the cumulative de-excitation of all of the ensemble of atoms slowly but surely builds up the emission line spectrum, in this case for one, two, three unobtainium. What about absorption lines? Well, absorption is the inverse process involving photons. If an electron in an orbital absorbs energy from a photon so that exactly the energy is absorbed to make the jump from a lower to a higher orbit, I will do so. The only, however, there's a rule, there's a proviso. I can only absorb those photons whose energy is exactly what I need to make the jump. If a photon comes along with, here's, the, here's for example, the 3 to 2 transition, which corresponds to this wavelength of red light. So I pass continuous light through the atom. So you see the continuous rainbow wash of color here. If the energy is exactly the energy for an electron sitting in N equals 2 to jump from 2 to 3 in hydrogen, then I will be able to absorb that photon and make the jump. If the energy is slightly larger, if it's a slightly bluer photon, that's too much energy. That would leave it dangling somewhere here between 3 and 4, and that's not allowed. Similarly, if I'm somewhat redder, something that would get me just barely to n equals 3, but not quite, again, disallowed and forbidden. You have to have not too little, but too much, but it's the ultimate Goldilocks rule. It only absorbs the photon where the energy is just right to make an allowed jump. And it's going to be an exact change kind of situation. You can't absorb, say, oh, I'll absorb half that photon and, and let the other half go. You can't do that. You've got to take it all or nothing. The way to think of the rule, the way I always thought of the rule when I was learning quantum mechanics was, photons don't make change, right? You get all the energy or you get nothing. So that means that you're only going to absorb a photon to make this 2 to 3 jump from exactly those energies. Similarly with 2 to, three, two to 4, 2 to 5, and 2 to 6. So if I take a continuous source, like a hot tungsten lamp, put a cold hydrogen gas between me and the lamp, and look at its spectrum, I see the rainbow wash of color of all the photons coming through, but those photons that are exactly of the energy to make the 3 to 2, 4 to 2, 5 to 2, and 6 to 2, or sorry, sorry 2 to 3, 2 to 4, 2 to 5, and 2 to 6 jumps, those will be removed from the light coming through, and they go into exciting the hydrogen atom. Now you say, wait a minute. I just got through saying that they get excited and then they de-excite. Doesn't the photon come back out and fill the line back in? Sometimes. But, but the thing is, it turns out when you de-excite, you forget the direction the photon came from. So sometimes you see a photon coming in and say, yeah, that's mine. Doom. Make the jump. So you go, I got it. I got it. I came from that direction. Where did it come from? I don't know. Throw it over that way. So it scatters it out into all directions, even though all the incoming photons are going this way. So on average, you remove light from the continuum. But it goes somewhere else. It just goes into all the other directions. In fact, if you looked at the cloud of gas, you've got the light source, you've got the cloud of gas in your spectrograph, and you're looking at the light source, and you kind of walk around at 90 degree angles, and you kind of look at the cloud of gas by itself, 
you'll see all the missing light coming out as emission lines. Now, all other photons, everything else just passes through unabsorbed. It's kind of a filter. It filters out those photons that it can use. The ones that don't have either too much or too little energy, doesn't have any use for them, they pass on through. Let's see this for unobtainium. Start out with unexcited unobtainium. That photon's no good. Hey, that photon's enough to jump into N equals 2. And then I'll get rid of it, but I'll spit it in some other direction. Eh, can't use that photon, no good. Oh, that looks good. That's a, boom, 1 to 3 transition. Okay, and now I'll de-excite. I'll drop into 2 and then drop into 1 sometime, spitting off two photons for the one I absorbed, but the energy of those two photons exactly adds up to the sum, and the demo is over. We've now got two absorption lines in this particular demonstration. So, if I want to go from a high energy to a low energy, I've got to emit a photon of exactly the energy I need to get rid of to make the jump. No more, no less. If I want to get a jump from a low energy to a high energy orbital, I've got to get that energy from somewhere, and I get it from a photon that has exactly the energy I need. No more, no less, because photons don't make change. Nor do, they nor do they take IOUs if they don't have enough energy. Well, what is too much energy? Remember I showed you that in the, in the picture of the hydrogen atom, there's a whole series of levels, but there's a, there's a stopping point. There's an energy above which, if I gave the electron that much energy, there's no more jumps it can go into. It would jump into the continuum band. Well, if an electron absorbs enough energy from a photon or maybe even from a collision with another atom so that it actually gets up into its continuum band, it will actually break free of the atom. In this case, I now have a positively charged ion because there's no, I'm missing one of the electrons to balance that charge, and I get an ion. I can also play this game of making ions by adding electrons. I can have a few extra electrons around from somewhere. I take these donor electrons and I start tossing them into the system and I might have a hydrogen with two electrons. I'd have H minus. One of the electrons already balances off the positive charge from the proton. The extra electron has nobody to balance. So I have this net negatively charged hydrogen. Negatively charged hydrogen is not very stable, but you can make it. In fact, stars seem to make it a little bit in some of their atmospheres. So I can have positive ions with a net positive charge by taking electrons away and I can have net negative charge by adding electrons. Obviously, taking electrons away is a little easier in most cases than adding electrons. Chemical processes are good at leaving electrons behind, for example, for negative ions. How do I get a positive ion? How do I get rid of the electron? I either have a collision with something else, which has got enough energy to kick the electron completely off the atom, or I absorb a photon whose energy is so big that it actually overcomes, the, it's larger than the largest energy orbital in the atom. Now, ions turn out to be important because they're different from their parent atoms. The spectrum that I get for a particular atom has to do with how the electrons are arranged within that atom and how they make their various jumps. But if I take away an electron, say, let's take, take for example, oxygen. Oxygen is a fairly simple element. It has eight protons in the nucleus. Neutral oxygen has eight electrons. What if I made oxygen plus? So I take and strip off one of the electrons, and now I got eight protons surrounded by seven electrons. That patterning of orbital energy, orbitals I show, that you would have 
would completely change because the atom would relax into a new set of orbital levels. So the spectrum of oxygen plus, or oxygen double plus, if I tore it off two electrons, would be different than oxygen all by itself. So ions are not only different spectrally, they're also chemically distinct. They behave differently chemically because the chemistry is determined by how many electrons you have and how they're arranged. So an ion differs from its parent in two forms. It has a different spectral line signature and it's different chemically. But it's the different spectral line signature that's most important to me here because it means I can look at a gas, say in a planet or a star with its spectrum and say, oh look, conditions in that star or that nebula are such that the dominant form of oxygen is not oxygen with all of its electrons, but oxygen missing two of its electrons. It's all oxygen double plus. Why is that? That's told me something important about the physical conditions within that material. It's an energetic enough environment for whatever reason. Lots of ultraviolet photons or maybe lots of collisions has stripped off some of the electrons. That's different than an environment which has oxygen all neutral, an oxygen with all eight of its electrons. So it becomes another one of the important clues for in the spectrum of the light, which is different for different ions, which ions are present tells me something about the thermodynamic state of that gas. So I'm starting to build up, if you will, the, the dictionary that tells me how to read the language of light. And the language of light is written in the spectrum of the light coming from a light source. So once again, unobtainium here. It ignores photons. It doesn't have anything to do with, oh, that one had enough energy to break it free. So again, set the thing in motion. It ignores a photon it can't do anything with, but this photon's so energetic, it busts the electron free and poof, and leaves behind a positively charged, single positively charged, unobtainium nucleus. All the atoms other than hydrogen have different spectra. Okay? Hydrogen has a very unique spectrum, helium has a unique spectrum, and so forth. As I add more protons and neutrons to the nucleus and pile on more electrons to produce the atom, I eventually get more and more complex internal structures. Those complex internal structures give me a different patterning of the ladder of energies. But what's important is, is that each ion element, or each ion of each element, has a unique spectral signature, a unique arrangement of internal electron orbitals. And so if I see these differences in the spectra, I can use it to fingerprint matter. I can tell you whether there's calcium present or absent within that material whether it's mostly hydrogen or mostly iron or some mix of some other compounds, because I'll see all the spectra from all the constituents superimposed. Furthermore, there's another little trick I can use, is even isotopes have slightly different spectra. Isotopes, remember, were chemically identical to the most common form. But now if I have an extra neutron or fewer neutrons in my nucleus, if you will, the mass of the nucleus is slightly different, so the electron orbitals will be very close to the same, that's the chemical signature, but they'll be very slight shifts. They'll either be smaller or larger as they readjust to the bigger or smaller mass in the middle. And that will give me slight shifts. So for example, the spectrum of hydrogen is a very specific set of lines. The spectrum of deuterium, hydrogen proton plus neutron, will be basically a hydrogen spectrum that someone has picked up and kind of moved to slightly higher energies. So it will stand out as, that photon can't come from hydrogen. It's coming from something like hydrogen, but with a heavier nucleus. Compute the shift. Oh, it's got an extra neutron. It's deuterium. 
So all of the different properties of matter we've talked about, how many electrons you've got, how many neutrons you've got in the nucleus, leave their fingerprints, leave their footprints in the spectrum of the object. So here, for example, is hydrogen, helium, one electron and two electrons. When I get up to oxygen with eight electrons, the spectrum starts getting more complicated because now I've got jumps going on among all those eight electrons are doing their thing as they absorb photons. Neon has 10 electrons. It's got a tremendously complicated spectrum. By iron, I got 26 electrons. You can imagine what it's like to try to compute all the various ways these 26 electrons can move up and down in response to getting smacked around by other atoms and absorbing photons coming through them. So much so that I can do hydrogen and paper and pencil in an advanced quantum course. I can even do helium. I can do helium with one electron, too. Oxygen? No. Iron? Mm, no, definitely not. In fact, there's a project going on on campus. Neil Prodhan, one of the professors in our department, has been using the supercomputers in the Ohio Supercomputing Center to compute all of the energy levels of iron at various ionic states. He's been doing it for 15 years with the world's fastest computers. This is a really tough problem. But of course, you can do this in the laboratory really easily because you can always take a pure gas, stick it in a jar, Light it up. Okay, you've all got a little grating. And I've got a gas tube down here containing hydrogen gas. Unfortunately, it lights up the second one, but just pay attention to the bright red one. Hold up your grating so that the long side of the grating is horizontal with the floor. Hold it up just in front of your face, kind of like this. And then look through it at an angle. Take one bar of the grating here and block the light. You don't want to look directly at the lamp and look off to one side and you see, ooh, hey, look at that. You see a bright red line, a kind of an aquamarine blue line, and kind of a purple line. Can everyone see it? This is important. So you've got to hold it up so that it's alongside with the floor. Hold it right in front of your face, right up there, just almost touching your nose. And then hold it up so that you look at the, close one eye, look at the lamp, and then block your eye with one bar of the slide. So you can't see the lamp anymore. It's hidden by the bar of the slide. And then look over to the right or left, depending on whether you're right or left-handed, and you see a spectrum. Can everyone see the spectrum? Cool? OK. So that's what hydrogen looks like. This is a continuous spectrum lamp. This is a hot solid. It's, keep your spectrograph up. I'm going to switch through a couple of different lamps here. So a hot solid emits basically a continuous rainbow wash of color. When I go to hydrogen, all of a sudden, now you see the 2 to 3, 2 to 4, and 2 to 5 spectral jumps. Now I'm going to make it a little more complicated atom, helium. Helium has a very different spectrum now. There's a bright yellow line. There's a couple of red lines, a couple of green lines, and a couple of blue lines. So you can see that the difference of just going from two protons and two electrons to one proton and one electron is dramatic. Very different, big difference in the spectrum. So it's hydrogen, helium. Now let's go up, ah, let's just go for it. Let's go to neon, 10 electrons, like a neon beer sign. Wow, look at that. All those lines all crowded together up in the red. There's yellow, there's green. If you look really carefully, you can just barely see a blue line, but it's really those red lines. And you look at the, spectra, the lamp straight, and you see it's, well, it looks like a neon beer sign. Now let's try something with a whole bunch of electrons. Mercury. 
gee, that's kind of a simple looking spectrum. It's got a yellow line and a green line and a blue line, some purple stuff going on. Turns out most of Mercury's emission lines are out in the ultraviolet. If I didn't have a special glass jacket on this thing, it'd be making ozone like you wouldn't believe in the room from all the ultraviolet. Okay, now let's try something a little different. Okay, what is this? This is neon, helium, hydrogen, again, back to helium, neon, mercury. Now, what do you think this is? Well, hmm, anyone got any ideas there? It's got a red line and a sort of an aquamarine blue line and a green line, so you kind of want to go hydrogen. But then you look carefully and there's a bunch of little faint lines all over the place. What's that going on there? Those are oxygen. That's water vapor. The electricity that makes it light up actually busts the water vapor into hydrogen and oxygen atoms, and you're seeing the combination of hydrogen and oxygen. Now let's look at this particular lamp here. Wow, look at that. It's almost like a rainbow color, but notice how it's banded together. What's going on there? This is carbon dioxide. This is a molecule. Molecules have extremely complex band structures. Finally, let's see. Oops. That one, that doesn't work. Okay. So there's carbon dioxide. A molecule is extremely complicated. Water is pretty simple because, in fact, the electricity busted into hydrogen and oxygen, so you don't get much banding structure. And then, of course, mercury, neon, helium, and hydrogen. Okay. Does it for the demo there. If you would please be so kind as to hand your gratings in towards the row, um, left or right, to the center aisle here, please, so the uh, TA and the IA can please pick them up. And let's go back to what we were talking about. So here, for example, is how you would use spectroscopy to decode what something is. Let's say, for example, I was to turn on the fluorescent lights. The reason I'm not going to do this is the lights are so bright in this room, it would just wipe everything out and you'd never see the spectrum. But what if I built a little spectrograph where I can look at a fluorescent light, like the tubes in the ceiling? Well, what I would see is the spectrum I see above. This is actually a photograph I took with a laboratory version of the spectrograph. And what I see is kind of a fat green band, a fat blue band, and kind of a fat red band. But there's also a series of very, very bright lines in here. Now, I recognize some of those bright lines. They, in fact, are part of the spectrum of mercury. So what does that tell me? Why is it that a fluorescent light looks white? Well, the reason is that fluorescent lamps, the reason why they're toxic and you have to handle them with hazmat gloves when they bust, is they contain mercury. You run high voltage through the mercury vapor, the mercury vapor lights up. Now, you may remember I said a little earlier that I had to have a special jacket around that mercury lamp so it didn't produce a lot of ultraviolet photons. Inside of a fluorescent lamp is mostly vacuum with the mercury vapor. It makes tons of ultraviolet, which would normally come out of the glass and smell really bad and also burn your eyes and your skin. So instead, they paint the inside of the glass with a special paint called a phosphor that absorbs the ultraviolet and has organic dyes that glow red, green, and blue. What happens on a computer if you combine red, green, and blue in equal, equal amounts? What do you get? White. So the way you make a fluorescent lamp is you use mercury as the exciter, and then you have organic phosphors that light up. It's called a triphosphor lamp. You can actually tell that the exciting gas is mercury.
A spectroscopy is a lot of fun. I built a Mark, th Mark IV spectrograph. It's a little handheld spectrograph using one of these little gratings, a uh, cardboard tube, mailer tube, and uh, a little slit I made out of a 3x5 card and some tape so I could sort of just isolate. Instead of looking at everything, I'm looking just at a little slit. And I went around the street, and I remember noticing that, that there were beer signs out there. You go, you go out on, the, uh, on High Street, and you see a lot of signs that look, neon signs in bars and stuff that look like that. And you look at it with the spectrograph, and sure enough, it's neon. But a few years ago, I noticed as I'd go out on High Street, walking home, and I walk home every day, that beer signs were showing up that were green, that were yellow, that were all kinds of colors. And I thought, wow, I wonder what gas, mix of gases they're using to get that. So I took my spectrograph with me, and I went down High Street one evening, and I looked at all the beer signs. And what did I find? Mercury. In fact, the multicolored beer signs, except for the pure clear glass neon ones, we're using mercury as an exciting gas, and then you use different organic phosphors to give you the different colors. So that's how they fake out the multicolor neon lights. In fact, they're almost all mercury lights. Another one I learned a little while ago was that there's a street light, one of these low-pressure sodium street lights out back behind my house. And when it lit up, I noticed it was a bright red, almost like a neon sign, and then it turned bright yellow. So I waited until dusk, got my spectrograph out, and looked at it. Sure enough, I saw this really, really bright spectrum of neon. But then as the filament heated up, the bright yellow lines of sodium began to assert themselves, and the neon kind of fell away. So I learned a kind of a little bit of a, a lamp trade secret. They use neon as the exciter gas, as the starter for a sodium lamp. This is what you can learn with just a handheld spectrograph. You can figure out what the spectral source is, what the chemicals, what the atoms are that make up the light source. You can do the same thing, not just with beer signs, but with stars. Here's the sun, now an absorption line spectrum. It's very hard to demonstrate absorption spectrum in a classroom. But you can do it with the sun. The sun is a hot solid, produces a continuous spectrum, but it's got a hot extended atmosphere containing lots of atoms and molecules. And sure enough, we saw this spectrum yesterday. These are the lines of hydrogen we just saw. They're at exactly the same energy levels as we saw in the hydrogen lamp. These are lines of sodium. They're the exact same orangish lines that make the high-pressure sodium lamps you see out on the as street lights in the city of Columbus. These are lines from magnesium that exists in the sun. And almost all the other stuff that you have running around is things. There's a couple lines of calcium down here. There's lines of iron. There's lines of helium. By identifying all the lines terrestrially, I can now identify all the constituents of the sun. So the, the, the real bottom line here with this stuff is that you can always tell what you're looking at. Okay? The important, I, we'll skip that, we'll do that later. The importance of spectroscopy is this. Spectrographs are basically how you read the message of light. Light is carrying all kinds of information to us about what its source was. Right? We talked about how if I see a continuous spectrum, I know I'm looking at a hot, dense gas or a hot, dense solid. And by measuring the peak wavelength that comes out of it using Wien's law, I can tell you what temperature that hot solid is. If I look at something like the sun, I'm seeing a slightly cooler gas superimposed on that hot, continuous spectrum. And I can read off all the different absorption lines and say there's hydrogen, magnesium, sodium. I can tell you what the thing is made of. And I can tell you what proportions of the atoms are in there. It's like being able to scoop up a little bit of it and bringing it into the chemistry lab and assaying it for, you know, 75% hydrogen, 25% helium, 1% oxygen, 1% nitrogen, dot, dot, dot. 
I can look at the relative proportions of the elements. I can see a glowing, glowing cloud of interstellar gas halfway across the universe, tell you its composition, its temperature, its pressure, its ionic state. Spectroscopy allows me to read the book of nature, not just simply with using ideas and theories, but actually comparing the physics on the Earth to the physics in the heavens and using spectroscopy to read the story of light. So there's one last piece of the story. How do I collect that light from space and direct it into a spectrograph? And tomorrow we'll talk about the telescope. See you all tomorrow.